0: Hi everyone, Anne Hawley here. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to let listeners know about StoryGrid Live, a gathering of writers serious about the craft of story, happening September 13th and 14th, 2019, in Nashville, Tennessee. StoryGrid has grown into a movement followed by tens of thousands of writers from all over the globe who are serious about their craft. This weekend event will be full of information, inspiration, and expertise, along with some food, fun, and nerdery with your fellow StoryGridders. StoryGrid Live 2019 is the place to be for writers looking to deepen and grow their expertise in the craft of storytelling. It's time to step out of your routine to spend two days alongside other writers and storytellers like you. This is a chance to not only learn, but to connect with other amazing writers. Sean Coyne and Tim Grawl will be presenting along with special guest Stephen Pressfield. All the roundtablers will be there too, and we hope to see you. Find out more at storygrid.com/slash live. That's storygrid.com slash live. And now on with the show.
1: Welcome to the Storygrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Anne Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. This week, Kim pitched Passengers as a clear example of a story that doesn't work. This 2016 film was directed by Morton Tildum from an original screenplay by John Spates. And just a reminder that this is an adult conversation and you may hear some adult words. Kim will start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Kim.
2: Okay. I have quite a few ideas about genre here. It's not entirely clear, but we have dueling external genres with love and action, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. And then internal genres, I see morality redemption for Jim and worldview maturation for Aurora. And I know Leslie's going to talk about education, so that's going to be excellent here in just a little bit. So in the beginning hook, on an interstellar journey to a new planet, Jim Preston is awoken from hypersleep 90 years early. After a year in solitude, he discovers how to wake another passenger, Aurora Lane, who he has become obsessed with. He must decide whether to remain alone or wake her early, damning her to life on the ship with no chance to return to hypersleep. After fighting the choice for months, he wakes her. In the middle build, Aurora adjusts to the shock of life on the ship and believing she is awake due to a pod malfunction begins a romantic relationship with Jim. But when the android bartender, Arthur, reveals that it was actually Jim who woke her up, she is mortified. Faced with the rest of her life on the ship with him, she must decide whether to hear out his explanation and apology or sever all ties. She refuses to interact with him at all. In the ending payoff, continuing system malfunctions cause another crew member, Gus, to wake early, and he helps them discover the problem with the ship before he dies. While fixing the ship, Jim is killed, but Aurora rescues and resuscitates him and subsequently restores their relationship. With the ship fully operational again, Jim discovers that Gus's bracelet would allow Aurora to return to sleep in the medical pod. He must decide whether to tell her and return to being alone forever or keep it a secret. He tells her. Now she must decide whether to return to sleep and go on to live the life she intended or stay awake with Jim on the ship. She stays awake, and they live out the rest of their lives together. So unlike Jupiter Ascending, I did enjoy this film overall, but I experienced many strange moments when I first watched it several months ago. It seems like an instance where my personal taste and enthusiasm made up for a lot of very blatant flaws. But that is not a sound strategy for telling a story that works. So let's look closer at why this story feels wonky and uneven. The Global Genre. What is it? Screenwriter John Spates has addressed the criticism of his hero's highly unethical decisions in an interview that I'll link to in the show notes. And here's what he says. It's not as if it's an accidental oversight of the film, where we, through some cultural blindness, have failed to see the appalling nature of our hero's actions. It is the subject of the film. And I think that making a movie that leaves people room to argue about what they would have done, what they could have forgiven, what they understand or fail to understand, I think that's great. I think that's good storytelling. What I don't believe the movie does is endorse or exonerate anyone. The movie looks even-handedly at the dilemma everybody was in. I think putting good people in impossible circumstances makes for fascinating storytelling. And I would wholeheartedly agree with Mr. Spates there. What's interesting is this comment makes me think that the writer's intent was to showcase this morality tale about selfishness versus altruism in really difficult circumstances. So I see, as I said, dueling external genres of love versus action. And within love, we even have obsession versus courtship. We begin with an obsession story, but it ends up resulting in a courtship, which is strange. Jim is obsessed with Aurora, and he fixates on her as a way to survive, but through their unique circumstances of relying on each other so fundamentally, they do fall in love, and despite the horrific events and actions that put them together, they find a way to forgive and commit to one another for life. Now, on the action side, I see certainly environment, but also there's some really interesting aspects of time as the villain. In this story, I think the action plot is really like a device, and it creates a setting for the love story to take place. The asteroid that comes in and threatens the ship is certainly part of the environment, but in the end, it's pretty easily fixable once they figure out what it is. Time here, though, seems to play a major role, and the fact that they're trapped on this journey in space and will have to live out their entire lives on the ship feels very important. The prospect of having to face all that time alone is a fate worse than death, which is what drives Jim's decision to wake Aurora and ultimately Aurora's decision not to go back to sleep even when given the chance. In the internal genres, I see morality redemption for Jim, I think. But because his selfishness is driven by exceptional misfortune, the fact that we are introduced to him first and we empathize with him so much, the audience experiences him more like a status tragic protagonist. We don't fully hold him accountable for his actions. And yet he is saved from this tragedy because of love. So while it is a morality redemption arc from selfishness to altruism, there are elements that feel a little off and they don't quite resonate with us the way that we're used to seeing it. For Aurora, I certainly see a worldview arc, and I pegged it as worldview maturation. It seems like her worldview arc here technically exists, and I can point it out and I can identify it, but I would have liked for the story to go deeper and for us to know her more. This is certainly a limit of the film as a medium where a novel version of the story would really shine. Getting to experience these characters in deep POV would be a wonderful experience. Now let's talk about narrative drive. The most obvious issue here with the story is narrative drive. For the first two-thirds of the film, the audience experiences dramatic irony for Aurora. Once the truth comes out at the all last moment, the entire momentum and tone of the story shifts. We go from dance-off silliness to crowbar violence. And with the tone so imbalanced, the viewing experience becomes really uncomfortable. Even at the end, there's this strangeness to it where we kind of wonder, could they really have reconciled in this way? I think the answer is yes, but did this story prove that case? I'm not sure. I find myself filling in the gaps with my own emotional truth, which is rooted in the power of unconditional love and forgiveness. I'm usually the least eye-for-an-eye kind of person in any conversation. But for many, and for perhaps most people, a betrayal of this magnitude is a burned bridge. And I totally get it. One issue I see is that Aurora's forgiveness comes largely from necessity she doesn't want to be left alone on the ship forever either. And while having her face the reality of being alone gives her a fresh appreciation and compassion for what Jim went through, I'm not sure the story goes far enough to restore the relationship to be believable. Again, it's a short change that may be a necessity of the film medium, and again, it's an excellent reason to write a novel. There is a video from one of my favorite YouTubers, Nerdwriter1, and it's called Passengers Rearranged. And in it, he recommends rearranging the story to have Aurora as the main POV character, and then shift the opening of the story to when she wakes up. This would change the narrative drive to suspense for Aurora, where we know as much as she does, and then mystery for Jim, where he knows everything that would have happened since he woke up, but we don't. The options that Nerdwriter 1 lays out are compelling, especially the variant where Jim dies completely and is unable to be resuscitated. It leaves Aurora alone to face the same lonely dilemma that he did. Should she wake up someone else? That hypothetical version of the story would end feeling like the way I experienced the film Ex Machina. We don't see how everything plays out on screen, but you can follow it through in your mind and it's absolutely chilling. But... As cool as that story would be, it's a very different genre.
3: Kim, I think that Nerdwriter 1 has made an excellent point here. We don't often talk about point of view on the podcast because in films, you know, often it's third-person omniscient, right? But point of view is one of the six core questions for a really good reason. It's one of the most valuable tools in the writer's toolbox. This would have been a more interesting story from Aurora's perspective, Now, I don't think it would have fixed all the storytelling issues at play here, but it instantly makes it more compelling. So the takeaway, I think, for novelists is this, decide who is telling the story and why, and even try telling your story from the perspective of different characters and figure out which one works best.
4: Or how do we best tell the story we're most interested in? Of course, I highly recommend exploring different points of view because it's hard to really know which story we want to write if we haven't at least considered some choices beyond the first thought that arises. Now, I may be in the minority, but I'm much more interested in Jim's dilemmas. So I wouldn't choose to write Aurora's story, though I would be happy to read someone else's
2: version of it. Excellent points, everybody. We talked about this in season three a bit with Jane Eyre, how different narrative devices, different structures, and different forms of narrative drive actually change what the audience perceives as the global genre of the story. The creators of Passengers seem to have set out to tell a morality tale through a love story to answer a very specific question in a very specific setting and circumstances. Can love prevail when one lover dooms the other to death for their own selfishness or out of their own weakness? Part of this question seems to revolve on whether or not you see Jim as a morality character, you know, a sophisticated individual that we must hold accountable for his actions, or a status character, a victim of misfortune and dire circumstances who cannot be fully held accountable for the outcome. But the answer ultimately seems to come from Aurora's own worldview shift about what makes life worthwhile. The extenuating circumstances that unjustly brought them together and tore them apart are also what allowed them to reconcile. So my big meta-why this week is, love prevails when we find meaning in choosing to love and forgive despite the weak and selfish failings of others. I've made one of my nerdy scene lists, and I have a link in the show notes, and you can check that out if you want. These decisions aren't just about what makes the story work, but what makes the story you want to tell work. I'm still a bit undecided on how to make passengers work as a love story in a truly emotionally satisfying way where I think it would work as something darker much more easily. I'm looking forward to everyone else's thoughts and we'll circle back around to our treatment plan and prescribed revisions in just a bit.
0: You know, the beginning hook in this film has a lot in common with the 2000 film Castaway, the one that stars Tom Hanks in a volleyball, where that film asks the question of how a lone human would survive in a completely deserted place and examines the power of hope And the power of the will to survive, passengers deliberately strips away the possibility of rescue or hope. It's a big difference, right? It leaves only Jim's moral choice of whether to steal somebody else's life or else lose his own. I hated myself for rooting for him, but the story felt like it left me no choice. The fix it version that you talked about, Kim, which I had seen before and thought was very impressive would have been better. But even then, the impossible dilemma remains. If she kills him out of revenge or something, or lets him die, or he he happens to die, a year later, she's going to be thinking about how to wake someone else up, like you said. No matter how you slice it, that is a Twilight Zone story with a haunting ending. And it's built on a situation so unlikely that we really can't derive much wisdom from it for ourselves, right? We'd just be looking in on this horrifying spectacle and thanking our lucky stars that it's not us in there. But the filmmakers didn't even leave us that haunting, spooky, Twilight Zone type of ending. They drummed up, to my mind, this completely implausible love story with a sentimental lose-but-win ending and then started troweling on the cliché scene after scene, which I will get into a little bit later.
1: (laughs) Okay. Wow. That's a lot. This thing does have a lot of challenges to overcome for sure. Valerie, what's your take on Passengers?
3: For this week, I'm going to take a little break in the studying of the empathy that I've been doing in the past episodes, because as important as that is, the very first thing that a writer needs to decide is genre. Developing empathy comes after that. We need to pick one genre and stick to it because everything in our story will flow from our genre choice since we're having so much trouble identifying the genre for Passengers, I thought it might be a good idea to look at the 15 core scenes to see what they reveal. When I watched Passengers, my first thought was, oh, okay, this is an action story based on, as Anne said, a similar premise to Castaway or even The Martian. Then it became a love story and then it seemed to flip back into an action story again. I wasn't quite sure what was happening. But now in saying that, I also saw the elements of redemption that Kim just talked about and the elements of the education story that Leslie is going to talk about in a minute. Just as a reminder, the 15 core scenes of any story turn on the global value at stake. So if this is an action story, I expect the 15 core scenes, which is the story spine, to turn on the value of life and death. If it's a love story, I expect them to turn on the value of love and hate. Full disclosure here, I found it hard, honestly, to know where to break the axe in this film. So as a result, the 15 core scenes were kind of hard to identify. (laughs) I've listed my educated guesses in the show notes, and you can see them there. But what I want to discuss here on the podcast is what I found as a result of doing this exercise. The beginning hook of any story does a couple of things, one of which is to let the audience know what story they're about to watch or read. Passengers has four of what I'm calling movements, and they are as follows. Jim is alone on the ship. Aurora and Jim fall in love. Then we have Gus's story, and then Aurora and Jim save the ship. I think the love story and Gus's story form the middle bill more or less. So as far as the beginning hook goes, the five commandments are pretty clear, and Jim even discusses his crisis question with Arthur, the bartender, and that is to wake Aurora up or not. And each of these scenes does turn on the life-death value for Jim first and then Aurora. In fact, Jim's climactic decision here in the beginning hook shoots him all the way past death right down to damnation, which is typically something we would see in a thriller and not an action story, thrillers or horrors. So from the first act, given the setting, the premise, and the global value at stake for the core scenes, As a viewer, I'm expecting an action story or even possibly a thriller, kind of sort of maybe a thriller, although really it feels like an action story. Now, there's a really long transition between Acts 1 and 2. It's 13 minutes long, which is an eternity in a movie, and this is as Aurora goes through the Kubler-Ross change curve that we just saw Jim go through after he woke up. Now, this is information that the audience already has. Even though Aurora tries a couple of different approaches, like for example, she looks for research papers and Jim didn't do that. We've essentially seen all of this stuff before. And as a result, the story loses momentum. Novelists face the same bringing a character up to speed issue all the time. And there's plenty of ways to do it. And when you're reading like a writer that is reading actively, you'll start to pick up ways that other writers have handled it. And there's lots of ways to do it that do not include completely restating known information. In fact, one of the techniques is used here in this film, and that's during the breakfast scene when Jim and Aurora are talking. The trick here is to not belabor the point. So the breakfast scene could have sufficed. Instead, they took up 10 additional minutes of screen time with it. And honestly, this is the kind of stuff that makes viewers turn off or readers close books. All right, next we have the middle build. And <laughs> okay, this middle build is problematic, I have to say. So as I said a minute ago, there's two definite parts to it. The first half is a love story. And then right after the midpoint shift, which is when the lovers break up, Gus awakens and it becomes an action story again. The big problem I think with the middle build is that there isn't a crisis moment. That's huge, right? the middle build crisis and climax is crucial to any story. In Passengers, the characters discover that a system-wide failure is imminent, but they don't do anything about it. And I went back and watched this part of the film several times because I thought I I just have to be missing something here. But what happens after that turning point when they discover all of the system-wide failures that are happening, the film goes from that to Gus's death. So in terms of value shift two core scenes here in the middle bill turn on life and death one the inciting incident turns on love hate and the crucial crisis and climax scenes are missing altogether that's a problem <laughs> there's also a setup that doesn't pay off we're told that one of the pods has a midwife in it now <sighs> Given that we've got a heterosexual couple in the prime of their lives and they're going at it like rabbits, a pregnancy seems like a foregone conclusion. In fact, talking about a midwife plants that idea in the audience's mind, but it never happens. It would totally make sense given the premise that's being set up and it would work for the global value of life and death. It would even work for an education story, but eh, it's just not there. Once Aurora reaches acceptance in her little Kubler-Ross change curve, the love story finally gets moving in the middle build. And this is a totally different story than the one we thought we were going to be told, but at least there is some kind of a story happening again. There's a getting to know you montage, which is filled with things we've already seen before the dancing, the basketball, the movies, the bar and so on. And there's a series of getting to know you falling in love dates. Now in our episode on the girl on the train, we introduced the concept of cuttlefish. And I want to give you a little heads up here. Cuttlefish that is, clues that are hidden in plain sight, doesn't work with dramatic irony. And Kim talked about dramatic irony a second ago. In passengers, the viewer is aware that there are serious system wide failures, but Jim and Aurora are ignorant of it. When Jim notices things malfunctioning, the lift and the Hoover, for example, he doesn't catch on that these are signs of bigger problems. So he just kind of looks a bit dumb. <laughs> Jordan Peele faced the same issue when he was writing Get Out. And if you recall from that episode, I quoted Jordan Peele saying that he consciously caught his protagonist up as quickly as he could because he knew if he didn't, he was going to lose the audience. Added to that, the fact that it takes a third pod failure to make Jim and Aurora realize that there's something wrong with the ship, like, that does not add to their credibility. All right, the ending payoff. All of the scenes in the ending payoff turn on life and death, which supports the gut feeling I had that we were now back in an action story. But honestly, the ending payoff is ridiculous. They've been awake for two years and have only now started to look for, quote, something broken, something big, unquote. (laughs) You're not supposed to be laughing at this point in the film, but I was, I, I have to admit, it just seemed a bit crazy. There is more than one hole in the ship. And they haven't noticed before, Jim does not die when the nuclear reactor vents all over him. Now he does die like a little bit later, but it isn't the actual venting of a nuclear reactor all over him that kills him. It was just bizarre. Aurora falls in love with Jim, the man who has condemned her, and they just live happily ever after. Like, I don't know. I have a great imagination, but I was having trouble stretching it that far. Okay, so there's just a couple of final notes that I wanted to make here about problems that I think that are in Passengers that can be fixed and lessons that we as novelists can take away from this film. First, there are so many plot holes in this film, it's like a sieve. And they're not little pinpricks of holes either. They're gaping holes that are immediately obvious on one viewing. So for us, the takeaway here is that while we may not create a watertight plot, Our job as writers is to try our best to do so. Only our super fans who read our books 25 times should be able to pick up on plot problems. Remember, we're casting a spell here. We're creating worlds and characters that exist only in our own imaginations. And we're inviting our readers to share that story with us. They want to do that. They're willing to go with us on whatever adventure we want to take them on. But they're trusting us to write something that is worth their time and their money. And finally, there is a difference between being inspired by other writers and ripping them off. On the flagship podcast, Anne and Sean are studying Brokeback Mountain, right down to the beat level. The idea is for Anne to be inspired by Annie Prue's work and for her to see how a master crafts person does her job. There's a huge difference between that and what the writers of Passengers have done. In Passengers, there are scenes and elements lifted right out of other stories and from other writers. And it's crazy. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The bar and The Bartender comes right out of Shining. The whole saving Jim bit at the end is straight from The Martian, right down to catching him with the tether. The spacewalk, which is hilarious, is from Aladdin. Jim even puts out his hand and says to her, do you trust me? Oh my God, which, you know, makes me start singing Aladdin songs in my head when takes me completely out of the film. Jennifer Lawrence's character, Aurora, hello, Sleeping Beauty, uh, in her little interview that Jim watches before he wakes her up, she says, we tell each other stories to know we're not alone. That's a C.S. Lewis quote. Come on, we read stories to know we're not alone. She talks about seeing herself growing up in her father's books. Well, that's Amy from Gone Girl. She's like a Franken character, (laughs) the Bride of Frankenstein. And okay, don't even get me started on Titanic. I won't even start with that. I'll just skip right over it. We saw this happen in Crazy Rich Asians too. And this stuff drives me bonkers because it's lazy writing. Professional authors read widely and deeply. They take inspiration from the masters who have come before them. And then they do the hard work of innovating, of leveling themselves up, and of mastering the craft themselves.
4: I'm really curious, Valerie, about the distinction between inspiration and homage on the one hand, and using something without adding your own interpretation on the other. At some point, it would be great to get into these details. We know that Anne isn't ripping off Annie Prue because we see her process, but I'm wondering how can we tell in the final product?
3: I thought about this too, Leslie, when I was preparing for today, and you know what? It's a big question, and it would be fascinating to tackle, especially in light of the fact that we're discovering that there are repeating scene types in stories. So it, yeah, it's a big question. I would love to study it. So I'll, I'll, we'll just add it to our list.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. The list is long and distinguished at this point. That was great, Valerie. I really appreciate your insights into that. And, and I wanted to talk a lot about the love story as well, because that's what I'm studying this season. This love story begins on a lie, or rather an obsession that Jim has for Aurora, because he's lonely, Although I wouldn't call it an obsession love story, I don't know if it's a courtship one either. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth. One thing I was really asking myself is, can you really have a love story when there really are only two characters? I really don't think so. Let me rephrase that. Can you have a love story that works without, say, a triangle or a secret on both sides? It's tough to say. The love subplot in Passengers, like we've all been saying, is full of holes. There are a lot of conventions in the love story that are just not present here.
2: I felt like I was able to find all the love conventions with that exception of the triangle. It's interesting to see it at play in a cast of two characters. The only real rival that I could find is perhaps this idea of life and adventure that Aurora always wanted, but I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, but to me, the absence of any rival contributed to the kidnapping or hostage feeling. Aurora doesn't have any other choices. She can't possibly choose her old life or her dreams or her career or anything like that, that you might dig around for as a potential third point on the triangle. There just isn't one. The love triangle convention exists, in my mind, to prove that true love, when it prevails, has prevailed over other options, other choices. I think the failure of this convention Lies at the heart of the problem that I and so many other viewers had with this movie as a love story.
1: Oh, yeah, indeed. I think that's, I think you nailed it. It's probably okay to leave out some of them for subplots, but I know for this one, it just doesn't feel that way. And it was the same like what we saw in Deep Impact it just leaves us not feeling as much for these characters. That's the way I feel about Jim and Aurora. I actually don't feel that sorry for them. Although initially, I feel sorry for Jim. They're kind of trapped, like you said. There's no other choice. While the lovers meet, their first kiss, confession of love, breakup, proof of love, and reuniting, are all they're all present in here. But for me, since there's no real barrier to their love or rather falling love, I mean, it's just obvious. You know, you're on a spaceship with one other person. It's pretty darn good chance that something's going to happen. There's no triangle, there's no helpers or harmers or opposing forces. I mean, I'm referring to other people, not the environment. I mean, that's going to kill them no matter what. They could really care less if they got together. There is not a lot of choices that the lovers need to make to be together. That, I think, is the critical part of any love subplot. There has to be a chance that they will fall in love with someone else or that a past lover will make them question the commitment or society forbids the union because they're from different classes. And we see some of the class divide, but it just can be easily overcome by simply breaking down a door or ordering an extra meal. I mean, it's really that simple. There is no conflict that's really keeping the lovers apart except for the ship falling apart and the secret that Arthur reveals to why Aurora is awake? Well, those are pretty good. They don't satisfy me in terms of the main question I feel a love story has to answer. Can these two people be together despite all the odds? And those odds be society themselves or other people. I mean, they have to have some other choices like you said, Anne. I don't think a love story works If what keeps the lovers together is a shared demise, I'm sure that would play a part in any reason to fall in love with another person. But if you're at the end of the world, you're sort of thrown into it. There's no other way to go.
4: So what I'm wondering is how is it different if the love story is a subplot? What I mean is if the main question in the story is not about whether the two people come together and if the love story elements are meant to mess with the human needs tanks of other than the one of the global genre, how does that change the way we look at the genre requirement?
1: My take on that is if it's a subplot and it's not driving the story, then you can kind of get away with less of them. Rather, if the love subplot is merely for a pause in the action or for comic relief, I think the reader and the viewer will just give it a pass and find it cute. If the subplot is an integral part of building empathy for the characters or driving the main story forward, which I think in this case it kind of is, then you need to nail the obligatory scenes and conventions. So what's the treatment plan for Passengers to make it work as a love story? First off, as it stands now... I don't think it's a main genre is love at all. I think it's an action environment plot with an internal genre of morality, redemption. And I think it's really a delayed action environment because that does not truly get going until after the midpoint shift when author tells Aurora that Jim will corrupt and then things start to fail more and more. Even then it's slow to develop until we meet Gus and try and figure out why everything is failing. I think it's action environment because the opening scene when Jim's pod malfunctions because of the meteor strike and the climax scene when uh, Aurora and Jim save the ship from that same meteor strike seems to work a little bit, but again, it's still muddled for me to make this work as a love story. We need more than just the environment, keeping the lovers apart or keeping them together. We need more backstory as to the flaws that Jim and Aurora have and bring to this potential relationship. We do get a brief look into Aurora's flaws from the video of her friend telling her to to let love into her heart or something like that. It's not that great and not on the page as they say. I mean, we need to see that, not just get a flashback from it. For love to really work, they need real alternatives for the lovers that are plausible. Usually, that means other people in close proximity. There was really no doubt that Jim and Aurora would fall in love. Most people put in that circumstance would do the same. And that's why passengers fell flat for me. I hated that about it. They, quote, unquote, inevitably fell in
0: love because they were both attractive straight people of a similar age. Jim chose to revive Aurora because he was obsessed with her and not, say, reviving another man or an older woman or that midwife or whatever, so that the storytellers could tell this twisted love story based on Stockholm Syndrome.
1: Maybe that's this type of love subplot. Maybe we should call it the Stockholm Love Syndrome. Thanks a lot for that, Anne. What about you, Leslie? What do you think of this?
4: Well, don't throw anything at me, guys, but um, I've got another take on the global genre here. I'm looking at passengers through a different lens and as a result came up with a different global genre. Right away, I was struck by the way one's need for meaning and purpose and love and belonging could be taken to life and death stakes. Along with finding a different genre, I I would break the acts differently, which means that the major dilemma or crisis that Jim faces in each act is different. In the beginning hook, to me, the crisis isn't about Aurora. He hasn't gotten there yet but whether Jim will choose to live or die. He enters the airlock with the intention to commit suicide. Now, he decides not to, but if he hadn't found Aurora, it's hard to imagine he would have had the will to go on living. Now, in the middle build, after his secret is revealed and Jim can't fix the relationship with Aurora, he finds purpose in fixing things on the ship importantly, he would reverse his decision to wake her if he could. At this point, he just can't. Now, when we're in the ending payoff and Jim finds the means to reverse his decision, he offers her the choice, though that would mean he'd be alone again. The thing is, at that point, he's reconnected with the meaning that comes from within, and so he's able to offer her that choice. So what am I talking about here? I think it's a worldview education story. And here's Friedman's cause and effect statement for that. When a sympathetic protagonist with a naive or cynical outlook experiences an opportunity or a challenge that enlightens them to a broader understanding, they find new meaning in their existing actions. To create an education story, The events and choices move the life value from the beginning negative value of meaninglessness to the positive value of meaning, that is, if everything works out okay. Along the way, the character faces cognitive dissonance when their thoughts on what provides meaning are challenged, and often they reach the negation of the negation, which is meaninglessness disguised as meaning. Now let's talk about humans generally for a moment. People can find meaning in all sorts of environments and conditions, but obviously some situations are easier than others, just as some environments foster survival more than others. When I started thinking about the principal sources of meaning in life, I came up with three. First, who we are, that is, our ideas and beliefs about who we are and why we're here. Second what we do, that is our work, but also our moral code. And three, the environment. In other words, our circumstances, but also that includes who we're with. It occurred to me that these are consistent with Friedman's three forms of the plot, thought, character, and fortune. And these sources of meaning are interconnected. An excess in one area can prop up A lack in another, but an extreme deficit in one could also negate the existence of another. Worldview education stories generally are about how people reconnect with the sources of meaning in their lives to give purpose to their actions. Well, who is the protagonist in a worldview education story? The protagonist is a character who is disconnected from the sources of meaning in life, either because they're naive or because they've suffered a traumatic experience, and sometimes both. Now that's the status quo state of their thought or worldview. But then their circumstances or fortune offer an opportunity or challenge that gives them a shot at reconnecting to those sources of meaning. And their character or will is strong enough to take advantage of that opportunity or challenge when it's presented. This is how I see it playing out in Jim's story. For his thought or worldview, Jim suffers from a naive lack of meaning before we meet him. He left Earth because he was merely a passenger there. If something's broken, people simply replace it. There's no call for his engineering expertise or know-how. So he wants to travel to Homestead too because he thinks he can build something there. Now, he could have found meaning in building something on the ship as he does by the end of the story. But for some reason in the beginning, that trauma, that is, he was unable to overcome that by himself. His circumstances or fortune, when he is left on the ship alone, he suffers a traumatic loss of meaning. His dream is shattered He probably won't survive to reach Homestead 2, and even if he did, he'd likely be too old to carry out his plans. And let's face it, if he could have done it on the ship before his transformation, he could have done it back on Earth and never would have had to leave. On top of that, he's alone except for Arthur, and though Arthur is delightful, he's an android, and he can't satisfy Jim's needs for love and belonging. In terms of Jim's character or will, at first he tries to fix his problem by reading manuals or waking members of the crew. And when that fails, he takes Arthur's advice to live a little. He tries the wide range of activities available aboard the ship. It just doesn't work for him. It's not enough to shake him out of the trauma. By the end of the story, though, Jim derives meaning from within, and we know this because he's willing to sacrifice first his life and then his life with Aurora. So the thing I see in education stories is that The key scenes shift some external value like the life-death spectrum of an action subplot or the love-hate spectrum of a love story subplot or even the respect and shame spectrum of a performance subplot. But the most important life value shift is about what the character makes of what happens or what it means to them. We see an extreme range of external values simply because we need to see whether they can shake the character out of their stuck place. Can the character learn to derive meaning from life no matter what happens? If the character can reach this level of meaning, there is a light or fire within that can't be put out no matter what happens to them. They've learned to source meaning from within. In the real world, I think about people like Victor Frankl or Anne Frank, who overcame amazing circumstances, just horrific circumstances, actually, to find meaning in their lives and share messages of hope. Other aspects of the worldview education pattern that I've identified, I find in this story as well. So the events of the external story, again, are important because they affect the character's external needs. But what's more important is how the character views them through their current lens of meaning. A person can endure almost anything when their life has meaning and purpose. And under those same circumstances, another person would be crushed if they don't find meaning in their lives. After all, what's the point of facing adversity if there is no point to life? There is often also in these stories more than one external genre subplot. Because, as I said in my hypothesis about the sources of meaning, we find meaning in what we do, and that also includes our work. And we also get meaning from our environment, which includes our relationships, So it's not surprising that we see these needs tanks getting poked along the way with love story subplots, often with obsession elements as the character seeks to find meaning however they can, but also performance elements. The final thing I've noted about these stories is that often another character experiences a similar crisis of meaning. They may embrace meaning through work, for example, but they find no meaning in their individual personal relationships. Aurora left Earth not because she wanted to start a new life on Homestead 2, but because she wanted to immediately return to have a great story to tell, and one that wouldn't really be about her. So for me, the point of this story is that Jim and Aurora are trapped. So many people feel trapped by their current existence, their current circumstances, and that's just the way they see the world. So what can we do when we feel trapped and have limited choices? Well, we can choose to find meaning in other ways.
2: Leslie, I just have to say thank you so much for articulating all of this so clearly. I didn't see the global worldview education, but everything you're saying makes total sense. And it would make sense why I still love the story, even though it's a mess, but it still resonated with me because worldview education stories resonate with me hardcore. Anyway, I'm having all kinds of amazing firework light bulb moments, and I'm just so appreciative of you sharing your gift of getting to the bottom of things. So I had to just jump in and say so.
0: Me too, Leslie. Thank you. You have changed my mind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess since life is a mess, then this movie's a mess too. <laughs> but <laughs> how about Anne, any, uh, anything more <laughs> to add about that? Or? <laughs>
0: well, yeah, here's the, here's the thing. I've been studying scene types or beat types, we really don't know which to call them yet, and middle builds in this last several episodes. And I'm wondering if there's anything in scene types that actually counts as innovation. So I'm going to talk about that But in light of what Leslie has just said, I want to say something that I'll bring up further when we get to our listener question, and that is that everything you said, Leslie, and Valerie and Kim about this story, the goods and the bads about it, are operating on a separate layer than the scene types themselves. So what I'm about to say doesn't seem to address any of that, and I don't want it to feel disconnected, but we'll talk more about how looking at scene types may not be all that connected to these other sort of more heartbeat elements of the story. So I continued my study of scene types this week, and I did grow our scene type database by a few entries, uh, not many. Now, this movie, to my mind, provides a remarkable variety of scene types or beat types, considering that we have only three characters at any one time and only a single setting, essentially, to work with for almost the entire story. Now, this film did a lot with things like the basic premise, that setting, this big spaceship, right, and the special effects, which were all over the place and really quite good. Uh, to make some of the more common scene types feel at least somewhat fresh and different. And as we're going to see, switching up the setting often does innovate a scene type. That's one of the only ways you can do it. Still, as you're going to see, there are a whole lot of cliches happening around here. As I notice scene or beat types, I try to validate my observation by scanning the story database in my head and seeing if I can find similar examples. As I mentioned earlier, the whole beginning hook was structurally just like Castaway, right down to the analogous human surrogates, Wilson the volleyball and Arthur the android bartender. Now, Valerie also mentioned the Martian and his sort of human surrogate when he wasn't able to communicate with Earth was just talking to his journal, but the journal can't talk back. Then, Jim kidnaps a real girl, and the whole thing pivots into an obsession love story. However, that's where the middle build starts. The middle build is packed with short, lively, colorful scenes, so it doesn't sag in terms of pacing. Now, Valerie pointed out a couple places where it does. Uh, I didn't find it particularly hard to get through. There are some good two-person conversations, which is a scene type, that turn exposition organically into ammunition. If you need to get information to your reader through dialogue make sure that one of your characters is realistically underinformed and needs the information, as Aurora does here. A different sort of two-person conversation arises when it's a conversation between a lone drinker and a bartender. This is another clever way of loading dialogue with exposition. Now, bartenders don't typically need the information that their customers provide, but it's part of their job to listen. And of course, alcohol loosens inhibitions, giving your drinking character a basis for revealing things. This scene type, which recurs several times in the story, takes on an interesting variant at the point when Jim confesses to Arthur that he has awoken Aurora and then binds Arthur to secrecy. And that struck me as structurally equivalent to a character invoking attorney, client, or doctor-patient privilege, which I theorize might be a scene type, and then burdening that listener with an unwanted secret. Now, if you're minding your setups and payoffs, your bartender, attorney, or shrink will become a complication down the line, as Arthur does when he launches the midpoint shift by spilling the beans to Aurora. But if you're committed to a fully crafted story, your bartender, therapist, or lawyer will have a clear reason for betraying the secret later on, and that does not happen here. Arthur just sort of decides to tell. It felt to me like a major story flaw. The talking computer interface provides the basis for a series of bureaucracy scenes. This scene type, which I first named in our Jupiter Ascending episode, and which we've seen in several other movies, including Coco creates frustration and delay, usually of a comic type, while telling us something about the society. Here, there's no humor to speak of, which adds a sinister note that kind of falls flat. Each time the characters deal with the blank wall of non-answers and obstruction from the computer that speaks, like corporate speak, the stakes rise until it's a matter of life or death. So, it's a good lesson. If you're going to repeat a scene type several times, raise the stakes each time, as they did here. Now, there are two notable meal scenes, a meal scene of domination, which is a surprisingly common type, and a meal scene of intimacy. In the first, Aurora has access to better food than Jim does, which has been mentioned, and offers to get him some. That's a little bit of dominance. Then he takes the superior position by shooting her ideas down and then she regains control by leaving the table without having eaten a bite. Denial of hunger is a power move, and you would be surprised how often you see it in meal scenes. In the second, an intimate fancy dinner serves purely to increase sexual tension. And here, the movie surprised me a little. Between the intimate dinner and the totally expected hard cut to a hot and heavy bedroom scene, they inserted a rarer and more interesting love story scene type that I'm calling the treat- that only the lover can provide. Think of Rocky taking Adrian skating at the ice rink that has been closed for the night in the movie Rocky. Think of Kane taking Jupiter flying above Chicago in Jupiter Ascending. One lover offers the other a unique, risky, beautiful, inspiring, forbidden, or thrilling experience, special access required. Here, Jim takes Aurora on a walk in space. And I have to admit, it's innovative and it sets up a major payoff at the end of the film. Now, Valerie thought it was a hackneyed take on Aladdin, complete with stealing the do you trust me line, which I didn't catch because, frankly, I have not seen a Disney movie since 1963 because I hate Disney movies. Uh, Fight me. I happened on a love story last week a written one called Wolves of Karelia" that was published in the Atlantic Monthly this month, and it contained a beautiful written version of this scene type, and I'm going to take a sec to read it to you because this will really clarify it. Here it goes. M took my hand and led me out to the middle of the frozen lake we'd camped beside in the night. The snowfall had turned it into a pure white field. Well, I said, I wanted to go home. I felt embarrassed. But M's face was bright, happy, flashing with something. He dropped to his knees and made big sweeping motions with his arms, clearing the surface of the ice. I thought I was dreaming. Suddenly, we were standing on air, on ice so perfectly clear it might have been air. Fifty feet below, I could see the algae on the stones at the bottom of the lake. It only happens when the water freezes very, very slowly, M said. The winter has to be so patient, and then one day, there it is, a miracle. He looked at me, letting out his breath. I thought you'd like that. It's a lovely story, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But back to passengers, here are a few more of the notable scene types I detected. I'll just run through a list obsessed lover starts leaving gifts for the beloved. There are two variants, one where the beloved is freaked out by the bizarre serial killer-like vibe of the offerings, and one where she enjoys the gifts. Here it's the latter, and one feels that the former might have been more apt. Then there's sneaking a peek. From Jack copping a glance at Ennis's naked body in Brokeback Mountain to the sight of a lady's trim ankle in a frivolous Regency romance. <laughs> this is the love story moment when sexual attraction becomes evident. Here, it's Jim catching Aurora in the swimming pool. They both clean up well, or the Cinderella moment. He appears in a nice suit. She appears in a sexy evening dress. Sadly, the script here actually has Aurora saying, you clean up pretty well, which was embarrassingly on the nose. We have conversation in a car, an enormously common scene type, and you wouldn't think you'd find it on a spaceship. It took me a minute to recognize this one. In a moving vehicle, one person is constrained to listen to the other. They can't escape. Here, Jim turns their whole world into a moving car by commandeering the ship's BA system and forcing Aurora to listen against her will. There is a post-sex pillow talk beat, which is more of a trope than anything. And then there's a birthday party scene. And this type of scene shows the passage of time. It shows increasing intimacy. It also tends to have a meal element because they're going to eat the cake, right? And that is a meal scene of celebrating too soon because the shit's about to hit the fan. We have a trope of man checks pocket for engagement ring and prepares to propose. And then after the big shocking truth comes out and the lovers break up, we have coming home to an empty apartment. She has moved out and all her clothes are gone, followed by reminiscing sadly over old photos. And then we have stuck in an elevator alone. He escapes by prying the doors apart halfway between floors. And how many times have you seen that scene? Many. And then, whoa, hang on a second. Where did this come from? There's the sudden appearance of another live human being an older, wiser, authoritative mentor figure risen from the sleep machine just in time to help them and die again. It's almost literally a deus ex machina. Now, Wikipedia informs us that William Golding resolved Lord of the Flies by a similarly unset up, unexpected, lucky appearance of an older and wiser figure. It is not common, nor should it be. Don't use it. Then we have coughing up blood, This guy is about to die. And then we have, the old wise mentor wants to die at his post in uniform. He breathes his last words to the lovers. He hands over the keys to the kingdom, which in this case is his ID bracelet, and charges them with finishing the mission. Run, boy, run, comes to mind from the movie Camelot, and we enter the ending payoff where common scene types and cliches continue to abound to the point where your teeth are grinding down. My conclusion is that the middle build, though mostly lively and with a good variety of scene types that drive the story forward, suffers from a preponderance of cliches in service of this fatally flawed story, and I haven't even touched on the giant plot holes. Valerie and I could probably list a thousand of them. No amount of zero gravity scenes or failing systems or love story conventions could have rescued this story for me, unfortunately. And my head is still aching from trying to understand why the hell the filmmakers wanted to tell it.
1: Whoa, okay. <laughs> Let's just calm down for a second. That <laughs> was great. Ooh, I had a lot to take in there, Anne. Kim, what are your uh, final thoughts on passengers?
2: It's been so much fun to listen to everyone wrestle with the story in their own way. But the whole point of looking at stories that don't work is to figure out how that can help us as writers who are trying to tell stories that do. So here is what is currently the treatment plan or the prescription for revisions for today's story. First, first wholeheartedly choose your genre. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could be action, it could be love, it could be worldview education, morality, punitive, whatever you want it to be. Go all in on the story that you really want to tell. That is, what is the truth that you want to share? And what's the experience that you want the audience to have? And then you have to figure out which content genre helps you showcase that truth. The second one, experiment to find your point of view, narrative device, and narrative drive. Choose the one that helps you tell this story that you really want to tell and tell it well to create that audience experience that you want them to have. And third, you need to create a solid story spine with the 15 core scenes that all turn on the same global life values at stake. So you got to pick your genre experiment to find the best way to tell it, and then construct a spine that's going to carry your audience through that. Now, I just want to take a minute to just say one more thing that like Jupiter Ascending, where you have directors and writers that are trying to tell a story that is larger than life, is complicated, and all of that. Here, we have an original fantasy science fiction script that is a rare thing in movies today. And Nerd writer one points this out on his YouTube video and he commends them even though the story is a mess That they still tried to write something original that was in- intriguing to them And I just I love that I love that about these stories that even though they're a mess and they don't work again I still got a lot out of the story and I think we learn a lot from these stories So no matter what you're trying to do what story you're trying to tell I think it's important to be willing to fail at it. Otherwise, what are we doing here? And I think that really points back to what Leslie was talking about with worldview education. What's the point of going through all of this trauma of trying to write a story that works if we're not willing to tell the story that really matters to us and being willing to fail about that story? I have to always leave us with some sort of big meta, like, why are we here? Why are we writing? And that's really what it comes down to, to me, is have the guts to tell the story that you want to tell, even if... Not everybody else gets it.
1: Wise words, Kim. Wise words. Great job on that. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from two students from the Story Grid Ground Your Craft course. Shannon asks, I finally found a masterwork to study and I filled in the grid at the chapter level. Next, I will fill in a fresh grid at the beat level, but I have a question about beat titles. Should we be creative in coming up with our beat titles because they are for a personal study, or is there a list of beat types somewhere for reference? Robert asks, what practical application does identifying beats have for us moving forward? Is it something I should use prior to first drafts, or am I better served looking at them in revisions? Anne has been doing amazing work in the masterwork experiment. and We'd love for her to share her experience using beat analysis.
0: Well, thank you, Robert and Shannon, for these questions. I dived into a deep pool with this subject, and I'm honestly not sure I can deliver clear answers yet, but let me give it a try here. Beat or scene types, and I we really don't know which is which yet, the titles seem purely personal and idiosyncratic to me. I just make them up for my own use. I try to come up with something abstract and universal enough to encompass a wide variety of settings and stories that other readers could recognize or writers. So, for instance, in today's episode, I identified the treat that only this lover can provide, which I was quite pleased with. But then sometime in the night, it occurred to me that this same scene type could happen in other than a love story, say, between a parent and a child or a mentor and a pupil. Is there a difference in intent or Can we employ this scene type to enhance attachment and intimacy between any two characters? I'm not sure yet, and the answer might affect the name, as you can see. Is there a list somewhere? Well, Valerie and I are trying to build one, and so far it's just a big, messy spreadsheet. So you can view it if you want. We'll stick a link in the show notes, but beware, it's a mess right now. As to the value of identifying beat or scene types in your own writing, I can make two pretty solid statements from my own experience so far. First, training that lens on stories does tend to ruin them for me, but it allows me to tease story systems apart. Pardon the uh, unpleasant image, but it seems a bit like dissecting a cadaver. This is the circulatory system. This is the muscular system. These are the nerves. These are the bones. Every system runs throughout the entire story, and each contributes something essential to the living being that a good story is. I don't know which bodily system the scene types represent. The metaphor really won't go that far, and we shouldn't try to stretch it, but it's something to think about. Second, in actual writing, I found scene or beat types useful so far, mostly as a writing prompt. Now, I've got a set of scene or beat types that I have to borrow from Brokeback Mountain for my experimental novella, and yes, they do give me some guidance. If I have to create my sneaking a peek beat, which I do, that eliminates all the million other things I could be writing about and limits me to just one. But while I'm actually writing the scene, I'm in writer mode then, right? the idea of beat type or scene type disappears again, and I probably won't come back to it till the first draft is done. Then in rewrites, I might use it to, you know, square some things up or fill in or take out as needed. So to summarize, start with super familiar common scene types like conversation in a car Strip away specifics from the story you're reading or watching and try to get down to the most abstract or universal components. That means those components that you can imagine transposing to a completely different story. Try to think whether this scene type you've discovered in a love story could have a place in another genre. Now, some are obviously more genre-specific than others. Until we have an official story grid list of officially named scene or beat types, which we are far from having yet, use a name that makes sense to you. I hope this helps. There's a lot more work to be done in this area.
1: We're on the job, and we hope all of you will be, too. Thanks, Anne, for that great answer. If you have questions about how to detect serious story flaws or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter, at StoryGridRT. Or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and leave us a voice message. We love to hear your voice. That wraps it up for this week. Great, great discussion. Thank you, and Kim, Leslie, and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into passengers. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp on how to detect and correct flaws in your story. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review, or tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time to find out whether the book or the movie is tastier as Anne takes us through Like Water for Chocolate, as an example of adapting a novel to a film. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.